Hi, my name is Eliane Goldstein, and you're listening to The Effect on Us. When I went downstairs to play with the kids with whom I'd played all my life, all of a sudden they're calling me a dirty little Jew and to walk in the sidewalk where I belonged. I had the courage to say, I have to get out. I was just so infused with the will to live that I said, I don't mind leaving my parents. Do you experience any pain from what they would do? Every single second of my life, and I will for the rest of my life. The Effect on Us podcast. Here's Eliane Goldstein. The Effect on Us is a podcast for people of all ages to learn about controversial subjects and the ties it has to people nowadays. In this season, the focus of the series is the Holocaust. You'll be able to hear some of the best survival stories I've ever heard from people that went through the Second World War and learn more about the effect the Holocaust had on people from Generation 1 to Generation 3. Did you know that in a survey of 1,100 Canadians, one quarter of the millennials that took that survey aren't even sure that they've heard about the Holocaust? In this episode, I'm talking to Maget Myers, who spent the war hiding in a town where everyone knew she was Jewish. My name is Maget Speiser Myers. My parents were from Poland. When were you born? December 5th, 1931. That makes me 90 years old now. And I was saying my parents uh, came from Poland and uh, they, uh, since there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Poland, they decided to leave Warsaw and go to Paris. And uh, this is where my brother and I, my brother six years older than I am, where we were both born. My father had studied at the Berlin University for to be an agronomist but there wasn't too much uh, opening for a, a Polish agronomist in France. So his uh, cousins were tailors. So my father my father had a unique gift. Is whatever his eyes saw, his hands could do. So he had not, he never studied, uh, never knew how to be a tailor, but he, you know, he started working, and he worked, worked out very well with his cousin. He was the tailor. My mother was, they called the finisher. She was the one who sewed the buttons and the lining because uh, tailoring is a, is a sport only reserved for, uh, for men. Women were not allowed to be tailors. What was your childhood like before the war? Well, it's, uh, see, when my father died, uh, when I was three and a half years old, my mother uh, took, was allowed to send me to school with the five-year-olds. That's where I learned how to read. And uh, it was the, the regular child, uh, the regular childhood of, uh, of any any child all over the world. I lived with my mother and my brother, because my father wasn't there. And uh, that went on until uh, September 1939. What was it like for you when the war started? When the war started, uh, the French government evacuated from Paris uh, all the women and children, the men uh, had gone, you know, were soldiers. And um, the French government was afraid at first that the parish was going to be bombed. And then uh, whoever wasn't necessary for the war effort was evacuated from uh, from Paris. And I ended up, I was evacuated with my school. And I ended up in a, uh, in a, in a small city uh, southeast of Paris called First Sens, and then another one called Vinov-sur-Yonne, 
and we were uh, we were all parked in the uh, in the gym room of a school and we we slept on straw mattresses straw mattresses is a build, like big bags like big potato bags on which they put uh, all kinds of uh, of straw and we slept on that with a uh, with a blanket and also we were always hungry but we were told we were warned not to touch the uh, the bread that was lying around the bread a blue colored bread because it was arsenic it was put there to kill the rats and we lived there i mean it, it was it was i was in a terrible state I, my head my head was full of lice and i had a big boil on my foot until my mother found me while i was evacuated there my mother my grandmother and my aunt my brother they were also evacuated from paris and put in a village a small village called chanlo a small village 150 uh, people in the village and they were put in a big in a beautiful home that had belonged to a sea captain a retired sea captain and the mayor when he put the um, the family there with another family uh, in the in that beautiful home, they he told uh, the, the the people he said, "Look, let me prepare something to eat. Please make sure that the old man eats with you, and uh, also, you know, watch that he, he should take his medication on time." So, uh, my, and of course, the house was neglected because uh, he was an old man. He didn't often uh, clean up. So my mother said to the other lady, the other family, "Just come, say we're going to." Uh, to do a little cleaning. They started with the kitchen. So they opened the cupboard, and in the kitchen, they, in the cupboard, they found a chest, a small chest. Of course, they opened the chest, and in there, there was money, and there was jewelry, and, uh, and all kinds of artifacts that the old man, he was a sea captain, had brought back from his voyages. So the, others, the other uh, lady said to my mother, we are rich. My mother said, what do you mean, we? Does it belong to us? And the other lady said, but he'll never remember he's old. Oh, no, no, my mother didn't sit well with my mother at all. So she called my grandmother and asked her to stand watch in the kitchen so the other lady shouldn't help herself. My mother went to fetch the mayor and the priest. The priest wasn't there, but the mayor came. Now, in that small village, 150 people, everybody is is related. So they had a main name, De Lagneau, but of course, people got married, so there were other names around, but but everybody was a cousin. So the mayor came, and uh, he, uh, since he was the cousin of Monsieur Bézine, he took the chest for safekeeping. And he told my mother, he said, Madame, consider yourself as a nunnery citizen of Chanlou. And if ever you need us, come back. So later on, I anticipate, but you will see that later on, how we were able to come back. And uh, so we lived there. I went to school. My mother went to work in the farms. So it was a, it was a city, uh, village of farms. So the way the ladies come nowadays to clean in the houses from one house to another. My mother used to go from one farm to another to sew. And my brother was helping in the farm. He, he was did the plowing in the fields. And I was going to school. And then uh, one day, I was I was at home. It must have been a Thursday because Thursday we didn't have school, and uh, we heard a big noise coming down from the top of the hill. Chanlo is built on a hill, so from top of the hill is a road from Paris, and the bottom road from the south. The road to the south. It's one road. So uh, we heard noise coming there. So 
I went over and, you know, curious as a child, I went looking for what it is, and I saw the first Germans' motorcycles driving down. And next to them, there was a tank. The tower of the tank was open, and there was a man standing, must have been an officer, all in black, and he was holding the, the, the gun, tank gun, and he was swiveling it like this back and forth. And I started screaming, Mama, Mama, the Bosch. We called him the Bosch at that time. Hitler's cross. My mother came fast and she closed the shutters. In France, at night, it was wooden shutters that you close so the light shouldn't come in, people should be able to sleep. So my mother closed the shutters, but on top of the shutters, they have openings like a circle, like a triangle. And my, my mother and I, both standing on the chair, we looked out and we saw the German army coming through. The, the trucks coming in with full of soldiers and they rode and... and <laughs> I don't remember how many hours they uh, they drove by. They do, they didn't stop in Charlotte. They stopped in another village of three kilometers from Charlotte called Abrol. And then we they didn't come into Charlotte for for a while. So we went continued working. My mother continued working. I continued going to school. And then there was what they call the the phony war. The phony war is that I mean. <laughs> The soldiers were on each side, and nobody, nobody was was fighting. Everything was quiet. So my mother decided, well, if everything's quiet, we might as well go back to Paris. So we took our suitcases, my mother, my grandmother, my brother, my aunt, and we walked. And there was no train in Charleville, so we had to walk about six kilometers to Brignon. And we took the train there, and the train started rolling. After a while, the train stops. So it's normal the train should stop. The train didn't start again. So my mother went down and she asked, she saw one of the fellows standing there, the uniform. She figured he must be from the, uh, from the railway. So he asked, she asked me, she said, well, how come the train stops? So the man said, well, the, uh, because the, the French army had blown up the bridge to halt the Germans. Didn't halt them for long. So my mother said, well, is, is there another bridge? And the man said, oh, yes, a little further on, there's a bridge. There was a bridge indeed, but it was a bridge made with rowboats, rowboats on which there were planks, big planks that were uh, nailed on them. You know, the, row, the rowboats just move. We had to cross that, cross the Seine in order to get to the other side. So we managed, even with our, with our luggage, but, you know, you could see in the water that there was some suitcases floating. Some poor people had dropped them. And we went, we arrived on the other side and uh, we took the train again to go to Paris. And then we, we started, you know, my mother started working. I went back to school, my brother also, and everything was quiet. And then the Germans started ordering, you know, giving out orders. Uh, every Jew has to register at the uh, police station. Now, uh, when you are a stranger, because my mother uh, wasn't uh, a citizen of France, but when you are a stranger in a country, you obey every law. I mean, the French people, they don't care, you know, they do it or they don't. But the Jews, they were stranger there. So they went to register. So they... Uh, the, the, the issue also ordered that the Jews were not allowed to go into cinemas, into uh, to the zoo or to parks, 
and the French doc Jewish doctors were not allowed to uh, to work, and uh, the same for lawyers and all the others. And also, when they went to register, they gave all the Jews uh, a piece of cloth shaped like a star. I'll show you. I kept I kept mine, that you you had to sew it on the left side of your clothes, and it was forbidden to hide it with a with a book or with a uh, you know what ladies had a bag. Bag. <laughs> How old were you at this time? I was uh, when we went back to Charlot. Nineteen. I was uh, seven. Seven. The war started. I was eight. How far along in the war was this? I'm sorry. How far along in the war was this? Uh, that must have been a year, a year, a year and a half. We, when we lived like that, we had to. At first, you know, at first, I, I thought, um, why, why are they doing that to us? It felt like like a, uh, as if you had a, a, some kind of a disease, a catching disease. But after a while, you know, you forget about it. You have it here. I remember an anecdote. Um, I had a friend, a Gentile friend, uh, Marguerite Briand, who was uh, make, who was doing, making her first communion in the church in, in France, in Paris. And in uh, in France, the first communions are dressed like brides, you know, white dresses and white veils and white gloves and white everything. Now, Marguerite's parents were right there by the door of the church, and I was a little further back. Marguerite came out of the church. She didn't go to her parents, but she came to me, and she kissed me, me who was standing there with the yellow star. That was a wonderful gesture. And we lived like this. And uh, then it was uh, July uh, 15, 1942. We were, I, was, I was at my, you know, my mother and I were at home, and because the curfew for the Jews were at 8 o'clock, for the non-Jews at 10. And there was a lady, Madame Dumas. My mother had a lot of friends who weren't Jewish. Madame Dumas was one of those, and uh, she was at our house. So it was past uh, eight o'clock, maybe nine, and uh, we were not allowed to go out. Madame Dumas could. So they knocked, they knocked at the door. We opened the door, and there was my aunt that came in. And my mother had remarried, and this lady was uh, my father's sister. And she was a blonde, blue eyes, tall girl, the, 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 exactly the, the German type. She was Jewish, but they didn't know she worked at the uh, German headquarters as a secretary. They didn't know she was Jewish, of course. And being a secretary, she knew what was going to happen. And she knew that uh, the next morning they're going to take the, they're coming to take the women and children. The men had been taken the year before. So she said to my mother, look, she says, uh, you have to go go somewhere because tomorrow morning they're coming to get the women and children. My mother said, I have nowhere to go. If I have to go tomorrow, I'll take Muget and I'll go with them. And I started crying and screaming. I don't want to go with you. I don't want to go. You go alone. I don't want to go. And I started rolling myself on the floor out of fit. So Madame du my mother didn't know what to do. Madame Dumas said, you know what, Bella? I said, why don't you come and sleep out of my house tonight? Somebody and Dubai and Maman, both with a pair of scissors, they uh, just just undid the yellow star. Madame Dubai put it in her bra. And uh, then we went to the med. Then, without the yellow star, we weren't, uh, they weren't, uh, you know, we knew we were Jewish. And we went to the metro to go to Madame Dumas, who lived at the other end of Paris. 
So in the metro, the seats in front, the seats faced each other. Here they one behind the other, but here they faced. Now, my mother and Madame Dumas found a seat, and there were German soldiers all over. And for me, there was no seat, but at the, the side of the door, there's a folding seat called un strapontin. So the street falls, you sit down, and when you get up, the street falls back again. So I was sitting in one of those strapontins, and across from me on the other one, there was an old gentleman that was looking, looking at me and looking at me. What is he, one, the old goat? I don't know who he is. And I tried not to look at him, but at a certain point, he looked, he looked at me, and he cut my eyes, and he looked down. I wanted to see what was so interesting, and I saw, to my horror, that on the beige coat was delineating the yellow thread of the yellow star. So I put my left hand on my right shoulder and I started pulling the threads. The old gentleman smiled and he uh, he got up at the next stop. I never knew who he was. And we arrived at Madame Dumas' house. We slept there. The next morning, early in the morning, before curfew, curfew was at seven, my mother started Go, try to go to to her mother and sister who lived at the other end of Paris, and uh, so there was no, of course, no transportation, no, no, no taxi, no bus, no nothing. It was curfew, so she started running through the streets of Paris, and uh, whenever she heard uh, boots walking or a lamp or a you know or a light, so she could she cut her she hid herself. One of the Paris had big, big doors to an apartments, you know, not like here. So in one, she was able to hide in the corner of one of those doors. And she finally arrived at her mother and uh, her sister. So my mother, my grandmother, and my aunt lived together. They lived on the third floor. My mother started running up the, the, the stairs. And on the second floor, she saw her sister, my aunt, coming down between two uh, French policemen. It wasn't the German that did the dirty work. It was the French. And my aunt told my mother in Yiddish, she said, you see, they're taking me away. And my mother didn't answer. You see, my, my aunt didn't speak French. She had been from, she come from Poland. She didn't have time. She was working. Didn't have time to learn uh, French. And my mother didn't answer. My mother thought, if she answers, they know that she she's Jewish also, and they'll take her. And later on, when my mother was old already, she used to say, she felt so bad. She said, my sister went to her death till my aunt died in Auschwitz, thinking I was angry at her. Anyways, my aunt was taken away. My mother ran up the last flight of stairs and got into her mother's apartment. My grandmother was sitting in the chair and crying. It's terrible to see your mother cry. And my grandmother was, was had a weak heart, and she just then there she had a heart attack. So my mother went to to fetch a doctor that we knew, a doctor who had looked after us not far. You know, the, the doctor came and he said we have to take it right away to the hospital. He said I'm going to call an ambulance. Now in France, I mean, we knew that the, the telephone has been invented, but no one had no one had a, a telephone. But he, being a doctor, he had one. So uh, he called the ambulance. The ambulance came and took my mother and my grandmother to the hospital. And they kept my grandmother three days, and they looked after her, of course. And then they told my mother, now you have to take her home. My mother said, couldn't you keep her another day? She's an old woman. She's sick. And cynically, they told her, you're, lu you're lucky we're not giving you away, giving you up. So my mother, half dragging, half, half carrying her mother, 
There was no transportation either. She brought her, her mother home, uh, put my grandmother to bed, and my grandmother died the next day. In the meantime, uh, Madame Dumas took me to a country, to cousins of hers. They, it, not even a village, was only seven farms. And it was called Le Bois Mouchet. And there, the, uh, the family Savigny, that's where I put that was her farm. It was a, uh, a farm that had seven children, but there was only two children left at home because the, the farm wasn't prosperous enough to, uh, to have, uh, to feed all those children. And the others were in farm, uh, neighboring farms. And then I was considered like a, a member of the family. I, I ate with them and I, I went, I, I had chores and I went to school. I, I had, everybody had chores there. My chore was to take the cows and bring the cows to the field. And the Savigny field, they had the cows where the, with nice new herbs growing, uh, new grass growing, I mean. And uh, with me, uh, there was a dog. Now, the dog, whenever he saw me preparing to go with my stick and the, my, you know, what, the, the hat or whatever I was wearing, the, this, the dog started yell, jumping and yapping. And everybody said, look how happy he is to go to field with Muget. Well, he was happy, all right. The minute he got to the field, he went under a tree and he stretched out his paws started snoring so first i i you know i pushed him with my foot and uh, showed me teeth so i went i figured i would have beat him a little you know and i i hit him with my stick my god he he got up i thought he was going to eat me up so i let him sleep and i went i mind the cow now the uh, the dog's uh, work was when the cows stray from the field because our field, I mean, I mean ours because uh, I, I live there. My field, our field was uh, full of new grass. But on the right, there was a field with the weeds growing. On the front, there was corn growing. And the, the cows are not stupid. They preferred, they much preferred the wheat and the corn to the uh, uh, to, to the, the grass where they were supposed to be. And the, the dogs, the, the dogs' work is to uh, just, you know, gently bite the cows' legs in order for them to come back. So I was running after the cows. So the cows, you know, they went along the field, they went up, and then they returned and went down. And uh, I, I was all alone there, and I spoke to myself in Yiddish. I loved the language. My it was the language of my my grandmother, my aunt, you know. And maybe that's the reason I still speak it today. And, uh, and I lived there. I went to school there after you know, I came home. I quite uh, a youngster's life. And after I arrived, my, my mother came to pick me up to take me with her to Chanlou. So we went, of course, we had our luggage and we were walking along the road. Uh, it's funny, in, in Chanlou, with the, it was a big village. There was no train. But here in those seven farms, there was a station, a train station. So we were walking along the road with our luggage, and there was a car that stopped alongside the road. And two men came out speaking perfect French. And one of them showed the, uh, the lapel, and he said, Gestapo. The Gestapo is the uh, German police. And he asked my mother, uh, what do you have in those, in those valises? 
I'm going to tell them, my daughter was on vacation at the farm, and I'm bringing her back to Paris. He says, okay, open it. Okay, there was my clothes, all right, but there was also a, uh, a ham and a chicken, and a dead chicken, and some eggs. And the, those, are, those are strictly forbidden. It's black market. and strictly forbidden. Okay, and uh, while the, this one said, open your uh, open suitcase, the other one said, where are your identification papers? In France, everybody has to have identification papers. So uh, for the French, it was just a two, you know, folded like this. For the um, for the Jews, for these foreigners, it opened like an accordion, and on the picture was stamped Jew. I'll show you. This was my grandmother. I only have the copy because I gave it to the museum. You see, it says Juif on it. So my mother was ready to open her uh, to open her purse. What can she do? They asked. And then one of them said, all right, you don't look like uh, like uh, bandits. You don't look like burp, like uh, like criminals. You can go. And he didn't look at the paper, and we, my mother didn't have to open the release. It, it's, a, it's a miracle. Okay, then my, we went, uh, my mother you know, took me to Paris first. And from Paris, we had to, we, uh, because we had to, to spend the night in Paris before we went from the Bois-Mouchet to Chanlot. Nowadays, uh, in a couple of hours, you go from one place to another. So we, uh, we were in the metro waiting to go and take the train. And then there was two uh, German soldiers coming down, coming towards us, you know, maybe not for us, but and I started shaking so hard. My, my whole body was shaking. My mother didn't know what to do with me. So she pinched me and she said between her teeth, she says, stop shaking. That quieted me down. So, uh, was okay. I went uh, back to uh, we went back to Paris first, and then uh, my mother, next day we took the train to go to Chalot, and then the life started again. My mother went to work in the farms. My brother in the fields. I went to school. I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Not only was she teaching, you know, reading and writing, arithmetic, all that, but she also gave us lessons, like life lessons. For instance, she said. She told, you know, she told us, she said, well, if you have a blood stain, always wash it in cold water. Because if you wash it in the hot water, the, uh, the hot water will, will cook the albumin of the, of the blood and you'll never be able to wash it, to have it again, wash it again. And she also said, when you, when you want to have a good soup, you put your vegetables in cold water. If you want to have good vegetables, you put them in boiling water. Yeah, things like this that she used to teach us, and we and we lived like this, quiet. Uh, and then one day, uh, I was going to. Oh yes, when my mother went to farm to work in the farms, she, they were paid. They paid her sometimes in uh, in money, but most of the time produce from the farm. So that night, I was going to one of the farms to get the milk, and I saw in one of the cafes. Friend uh, Charlot had two cafes. One of the cafes. There was a uh, a German uh, a German uh, car standing there, so of course I saw German. I kept on walking, but on the way back I saw my brother there. So, what was my brother doing with a near German car? I went over, and there was four young men, with each I was wearing a uh, band on the arm that said F F I F F E, 
force française de l'intérieur, de résistance. And they told us that the Americans are about 10 kilometers of from Shanghai, they're going to come in and any minute now, and during the night. So no one was slept, but they didn't come. And the next morning, again, we heard a rumbling coming from the, uh, from the, the, the old Shanghai, the height of Shanghai. So everybody ran, started running outside, and we started screaming. And first came the motorcycles, and then jeeps. Jeeps. I've never seen any, anything driven like this on, on, two, on two wheels so quickly, so fast. And then came, this, came the, uh, the trucks with the soldiers inside. And the, they started throwing us uh, candies and chocolates and, and, and uh, sardines and soap and everything they had. They threw, they throw, they they uh, they throw to us, and uh, they when when uh, after one part stopped, and when when they stopped, we went over to them. We wanted to kiss them and hug them, and uh, one jeep stopped with uh, some some young uh, American, and they asked if we had fresh fruits. Everyone ran into ran into their house and showered them with with all kinds of fruit, whatever fruit it was July, whatever fruit there was. And it was it was a wonderful it was a wonderful time, and uh, and after that uh, and then it was it was the liberation. Like the the American uh, came, they went uh, to Avril, the same place with, that the Germans occupied before. That's where they where they were stationed. So uh, after a while, my mother said we may as well go back to Paris. Everything is. Uh, my parents went back first. And I stayed, I was, uh, they let me in the farm because in, in France, at the end of your studies, you go to the, uh, the nearest city and uh, you had to pass some exams, just making sure that uh, you remember everything you learned during all those school years. And so my mother left me there in order for me to get my certificate, which I was able to get. Of course, they, you know, there's tests and uh, I passed the test. And then I went back to Paris. And I went, I went to school. My mother went to work. My brother went to work. Uh, my mother had a good uh, coat, a very good coat that used to belong to her mother, a woolen winter coat. Now, she wrote to my father's mother because my, my paternal uh, grandmother had lived with us in Charlotte. So she, she was also a survivor. So my mother wrote to her, because no telephone, of course, asking her if by any chance she wouldn't need the coat. My mother didn't need it. So my grandmother came, she took the coat, and uh, she took it home. Now, my mother's mother was a short little lady, where my father's mother was tall. So in order for a coat to fit her, she opened the hems. And in the hems, she found American money and two letters from my mother's brothers. My mother knew that she had two brothers in America. But America. America is from the North Pole to the Tierra del Fuego. You know, the, the whole thing is America. But now that she had the letters with the addresses, she was able to write to her brothers. Now, of course, they were overjoyed, thinking that, you know, thank God, uh, out of, and they, since we knew what was, and they knew what happened in Europe, that uh, at least one member of the family had survived. And they start making arrangements for us to, uh, to come to Canada. We had uh, my mother and brother, there was a, we had a, brand, an, uh, an aunt in Brantford. And uh, she was uh, better off, I guess, than my uncles were. So the three of them got together to send us tickets for uh, for Canada. 
So in France, of course, we went to identification paper, we went to uh, do everything that we needed, and uh, we left Paris. Uh, we had to go to London to the, to get to take the planes. So we left. We came from Paris. We took a train to Calais. From Calais, we took the uh, the boat, uh, the ship to the Channel. Uh, we were sick like dogs. And uh, we stopped in Dover. In Dover, we went uh, to London. We took the train to London. And we we stood in the London. We uh, we were we were stationed in a in a hotel. Now everything was done from Canada. So in the hotel there was a sign. Here we speak French. We were so happy. Finally, somebody to uh, that understands us went to the desk. Nobody understood us. The only person. That understood it with another guest that came from India. Anyway, the next we slept in a hotel. The next day we went to uh, to the airport and we boarded the plane. We waited about an hour on the tarmac and the plane took off. An hour later, the plane came back to London. There was some technical problem with it, and then after the plane took off, and uh, it took us 24 hours to to come to Canada. Because first the car stopped in uh, in London, then stopped in in uh, I'm sorry, stopped in in uh, Scotland, stopped in Ireland, stopped in Greenland, and then crossed and stopped at Gander, I think. And finally, we weren't able to land in, in Montreal because uh, there was uh, it was in the snow. It was September. It was I'm sorry. It was November 17th. And uh, there was snow and there was a lot of fog. So finally, the, the, the plane took us to Boston. Boston, they took, they put us in a hotel and they serve us a meal. Now in France, the, uh, every meal is separate. You get a, a salad and they take the plate. You get a piece of meat, not together with the rest, a piece of meat, they take the plate, then take the vegetable, they take away the plate. Now here, everything was in one plate. There was a piece of meat. There was half a potato and a couple of green peas. My mother was pushing me with her elbow. She says, they're crazy, those Americans. It's the middle of winter, and they put ice in the drinks. In France, we didn't do that. And uh, then we slept over at the hotel. And the next day, we took the train to Windsor Station in Montreal. Now, my aunt from Toronto wanted us to come to Toronto. But my aunt in Montreal uh, said, come here. He will speak French. Okay, they spoke French, but... I'm sorry, their French at the beginning we didn't understand, but still, you know that the uh, okay. My mother wanted to send me to a, to a French school, so she telephoned and uh, gave the nun that answered asked us whether we were uh, Christian. My mother said, "No, no, we're Jewish." Ah, if you're Jewish, then you have to pay so much per month to let your daughter come to a French school. My mother couldn't afford that, so I went to an English school. Uh, it, it was a uh, a commercial high in France. I had gone to commercial high school, and here too they took me to commercial. They write, you know, I was written into commercial school, and I went. And then the the teacher, I think, was the commerce teacher. She asked if I knew how to type. Oh yes, I know how to type. Said, okay, so she put me in front of a typewriter, and she gave me a piece of paper. And I was in France. I was used to typing. You know, I look at the text here, and I type there. So I started typing, and the teacher stopped me. She says, you sure you knew how to type? Of course, she showed me the paper. It was gibberish. The English keyboard is not the same as the French keyboard. I had to learn typing all over again. 
Anyways, I, I was in school for uh, for a while, a year or two, and then my brother who lived with us got married. So uh, when he's married, uh, you know, he has his own family. There is no more money coming in from him. So I stopped school and I went to work. Now I went to work. I I, I knew nothing. I wasn't I had no aptitude for for anything. So the uh, I uh, I got a job in a in a factory where uh, they were making. Uh, Men's men's uh, suits. So there was uh, big tables, and some men were cutting the cloth. Other men were assembling it. The third one was sewing. And uh, my job was uh, they called a ticketer. It was a ticket, a piece of paper, on which the I had to write the uh, the name of the cloth, what the cloth was, and the, the size it was going to be, the shade, and all that. So that was my job. And there was another young lady working with me. Now, in, the, in that factory, um, we worked from 8 o'clock in the morning till 5. And around 10 o'clock in the morning, the other girl went around asking the men whether they wanted anything to eat because there was a cafeteria then the bar, and on the first, like, downstairs. So the men gave her money, told her what they wanted, and uh, she went, and uh, she went back and gave her their money. And then one day, I found the... Uh, a chocolate bar, a cherry blossom on my desk. When the girl came back from her tour, I asked her, I said, look, it's not, not mine. I never had any money. I gave my money to my check, envelope check to my mother. My mother gave me 25, gave me 25 cents for the bus and, um, and 25 cents in case I'd need a cup of coffee, you know, if I wasn't feeling well one day. So I said, no, I said, can't be, it's not mine. So she came back. She said, no, she said, I know, she said, the young man over there, he's the one who, uh, Offering it to you. Well, I was well brought up, so I went over to the young man and told him to thank him and told him, I'm sorry, sir, I can't accept a present from people I don't know first, and then I, I wouldn't accept anyways. So, okay, that's fine. Uh, so, in a couple of weeks, and it was okay. And then the Sherry Blossom was back, back on my desk again. I went over to thank him and I to tell him I couldn't accept, and he asked me if he could take me home. Okay, so he took me home, and two years later we got married. End of the story. That is a very sweet story. Thank you. Um, is there any message that you would like to give to people nowadays? Oh yes, especially to uh, people your age and thing. To tell them that uh, later on, you people, you young people, will, will be in power. You will make the laws. Please be be tolerant. Tolerant of people who don't look like you, who don't dress like you, who don't speak like you. Please be tolerant. And also, if you see that an injustice is being committed, speak up, talk, say something, you know, go and, and do something about it. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard, there was a writer, uh, Elie Wiesel. He, was, uh, he had been in a concentration camp. He came out, he wrote, he was also a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And he said, silence profits the tormentor, never of the victim. And also, to speak up, I, I, will, give, I will leave you with the, uh, with the words of a pastor. Uh, there was a Protestant pastor, a priest, who was in Auschwitz and came back. And he said, when they came for, when they came for the Jews, I didn't protest, I wasn't a Jew. When they came for the communists, I didn't protest. I wasn't a communist. When they came for the invalids, I didn't protest. I wasn't an invalid. 
And when they came for me, there was no one left to protest. That is very insightful. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Join me next time when I talk to Maurizia Shelley, who tells me how she jumped off her bridge to escape the Nazis. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. This is Eliane Goldstein. Tune in next time to The Effect on Us. And remember, history will not repeat itself. Bye.